let's read from the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians is the book that we're reading from. There's two books in the Bible called Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians. There were actually, as best we can tell, five Corinthian letters, letters from a guy named Paul to the church in Corinth, the church that he started in the city of Corinth, which was a very rough city. Uh, a lot of pagan worship with uh, uh, ritual, cultish behaviors and practices that they would uh, uh, participate in in order to worship the gods. It was a two-port city because it was on a peninsula, and it was cheaper uh, to land your ship and then unload it, load it into a new boat and keep going than to go down and around. So there's a whole slave class of people in the town or in the city that would actually, their jobs was unloading and reloading. And while they were doing that, sailors were carousing and doing sailor things uh, that you would, no offense, Navy vets, but uh, they were doing things that you would think that you would do in a center of cult and worship and temple worship in the pagan setting. And so there's all this kind of context and Paul rolls into town and says, hey, let's start a church here. And naturally that church struggles and struggles to understand what it is. There's some Jewish population, but not a lot. And Christianity grew out of the Jewish faith that they at least had a history of who God is, uh, the, the existence of a God over all gods and a one God who is the only God and the other gods being false. And so in all of that, Paul writes these letters and some of them he's very like, hey, you're doing great. Let's keep going. Be strong. Don't give up. And in others, and in today's, uh, especially today's passage, he actually says, um, you know what would make your church better if you stopped getting together on Sundays? Uh, just because when you get together on Sundays, that's the worst part of your church. And you can imagine that would be a little bit depressing for the leaders of that church, you know? Uh, if, you, if you can imagine, hey, the best way forward for our church is to pretend we don't exist. Uh, they, they were having a rough time. And so today's uh, scripture is going to be taken from two different chapters because he kind of talks about something and then he, he meanders, goes down a rabbit hole, and then comes back to it. And he actually talks about this thing called communion, which is why we have these tables set up and there'll be one in the back in a minute. When we uh, talk about communion, you might have a religious history, you might not, and, and different people call it different things like the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or the Mass, depending on your tradition. Christians uh, throughout history have all Christians of all kinds have participated in communion. Uh, there are, we believe, two things that we call sacraments, uh, communion and baptism. And baptism is like an entry ritual into the church. It's announcing that I am a follower of Jesus. And then communion is like a renewal or a recommitment ritual in the church where you continue to announce that, that I am a part of the family of God. There's other churches or other denominations that have different numbers, uh, like there's some that have three sacraments, the Catholics are killing it with seven sacraments, uh, but um, there's, there's others that say everything is sacred, so nothing is sacred, and so they have zero sacraments or infinity sacraments, depending on uh, you know, how you feel about that theology, but uh, when, we look, when most Protestant churches look at the scripture, Jesus said, go around baptizing everyone, and whenever you get together, do this practice of eating a piece of bread and drinking uh, a glass of wine. Uh, and, and this practice that Jesus instituted, uh, you'll hear this said all the time, but on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he was passed over to the authorities, he actually was in an upper room with his disciples, reclined at a table, and they would have like a low sitting table with pillows, and they'd be chilling at the table towards the end. 
And he, he took this piece of bread and he broke it and passed it around and told them, this is, uh, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now, if you're a, a Jewish person, that's either super offensive or super confusing. Because actually eating a human body would be extremely unkosher and extremely gross. Uh, and so there, there's some discussion over what that metaphor was or not. And then Jesus took this cup of wine and passed it around and said, this is my, uh, my blood, which will, be sh- which will be shed for you, the blood of the new covenant. And so he passed it around and all the disciples that were with him, the, the guys in the room, all drank out of the same, they hadn't discovered germs yet, right? None of them were freaked out. And, and it's wine, so it sanitizes itself, right? So, but we're going to say that. And so they passed it around. And so they ate this bread and they drank this cup together in this ritual that remembers Jesus. And so the church, the family of God, has been doing this for 2,000 years. You can go anywhere in history, anywhere in the world, and it might look different. The exact practice might be different. For instance, our bread is gluten-free, and other people think that that's liberal hippies taking over the world. We just think people who don't like gluten should be able to participate. But uh, uh, we don't use real wine, because we have people here in this room who taking a little drink of real wine would actually be really harmful, and because it's a public setting, uh, we use grape juice. Uh, and that's just kind of what our practice is. But it's not meaning that this is the way or another way is the way. It's just people expressing this remembrance that Jesus sat down with his disciples and said, this means something. We actually use the word uh, means of grace. That's a theological term, a means of grace. And here's what that means. In a, in a little while, we're going to practice communion. And when you do that, in that practice, you will receive grace from God in a particular way that only happens through the practice of communion. The same is true for baptism. People who are baptized experience the grace of God in a particular way that people who refuse to get baptized or avoid getting baptized don't experience. So this ritual is insanely meaningful, and understanding it uh, will help us grow in our faith. And so normally, like we do a sermon, then we do like one minute on this is what communion is, and we do communion. And today, because the scripture goes there, we're going to just talk about communion for like 15 minutes and then actually practice it and enjoy uh, the grace of God in that. So 1 Corinthians 10, 15, it'll be on the screen uh, if you don't have the app, but uh, we'll read together about just this love of God being poured out and our, and our um, moving into that and experiencing it. Uh, He starts like this, which is a great way to start a a new paragraph. He says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. It's always great to start that way, to say to the audience, hey, you're really smart. You can handle what I'm about to say. Uh, It's kind of like saying, no offense, but, and and, uh, and I know you're not going to be offended. You can handle this. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, and we share the loaf. So he says, you are smart people. Don't you notice that when we do this, we're actually participating in what God does? So it's not just a ritual. It's not just a a piece of bread and a little cup of juice that we're going to ingest. It's an actual entering into the suffering and the bleeding and the death of Christ. 
It's a unifying practice that actually brings us into what's happening. And then he gives an example. Paul, who wrote this letter, who's a leader who started the church in, in the town of Corinth. Consider the people of Israel, so the Jewish people. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Uh, do I mean that food sacrifice to an idol or a false god is anything or that an idol is anything? No, of course not. Uh, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participating with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. Uh, you cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Uh, he goes through this kind of example because this was the issue that was affecting uh, the people in Corinth. Most of the meat that you would buy at the, at the butcher shop or at the market, they received from sacrifices. And so you understand, sacrifices work like you would kill an animal, throw it on this huge barbecue, cook it, and then some of the priests would get certain parts. And this was true in the Jewish faith and in pagan ritual cults. You would, the priests would get certain parts and then the worshipers would get certain parts. Like if you brought the animal, you would get a certain part to eat and that's your participation. Like you didn't do anything, you just kind of stood there and watched it happen. But then when you ate it, you were participating in what was happening and, and applying that sacrifice to yourself. And then some of it would be sold at the market so that, uh, and it's parts of the animal, both that were on the altar and that weren't on the altar, will be sold at the market to help fund the operations of the local temple. And so when the pagan rituals and the Jewish rituals are all participating in the same way, those who eat are part of the worship. It actually says, uh, and I'm gonna, you're, some of you are going to love this, eating is a spiritual experience. <laughs> that, it depends on like, which restaurant you're at, I guess. But eating is supposed to be a spiritual experience. It's a unifying experience. It's something that brings us together and we enter into participation in what is happening around the meal. And so when the meal is centered around a sacrificial system, you're entering into that worship. When you're eating together with your family, you're entering into what it is that makes your family. When you eat together with your coworkers at lunch, you're entering into that relationship that you have with your coworkers. And so there's this unifying practice that communion is meant to be with each other, but then because of the worship element, there's a unifying practice between us and God. And so communion becomes this moment where we are connected to each other and we are connected to God all together in a way that we don't experience otherwise, in a way that we don't experience outside of the practice of communion. So we flip over, Paul begins talking about something else, and then in chapter 11, uh, he begins to talk again. Uh, and this is uh, chapter 11, verse 17. It'll be on the screen. Uh, this is how he starts this section. Remember the last section he starts with, you're smart people. This section he starts with, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. Basically, when you get together for church, it hurts all the other churches because your church is so bad that it's actually somehow making it worse for all the other churches. Could you imagine this? Like, this is just, uh, like, if this was a Facebook review, this is like one star, right? Like, this is uh, someone who just doesn't understand the way the rating system works and thinks one star is first place, right? You're like, oh, dang it, you know, right? But uh, this is as bad as it gets for someone to tell a church 
a regional leader or the leader of the churches in general to say, well, you know what's wrong with your church? Everything. <laughs> it's also kind of encouraging in a strange way. Okay, uh, no matter how th bad things get, we're not Corinth. <laughs> this is what he says. This is the reason why, verse 18 of chapter 11. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Uh, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And so there's going to be difference among people. Uh, but, so then when you come together, when, because there's divisions, it's not the Lord's Supper uh, that you eat. And so there are divisions when they come together, like actually they come together to participate in communion, and there are people that are dividing up the room to participate in their own communion rituals at the exclusion of other people participating in communion with them. Practical example. We're doing communion. You know we're doing communion, but you want to do communion just with your friends, and so you bring your own bottle of wine and your own loaf of bread that's better tasting than the gluten-free stuff we have up here. And you're like, let those gluten-free hippies have that. We're going to have this cheesy bread back here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want that grape juice, I'm going to have real wine, which I think is against the rules because we're renting space from a public school. But uh, <laughs> the, you could imagine that being awkward for everyone around you, right? If we all got up to communion and you pulled in, oh, you, 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 oh, why don't you come over here? And in the context that was actually happening was the rich people were getting together. And they were saying, listen, there's going to be a bunch of poor hands touching that that loaf that we pass around. Ours is pre-broken, so you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but there's going to be poor people up there. And so why don't we come back here? And this is really good bread, so I'd like to eat more of it. And we've got the whole bottle. And so, like, might as well drink it all. And so they created this, like, rich area in their church, which you can imagine being awkward. And so you can imagine that being justified when Paul says, you know what's wrong with your church, basically everything. This, when it comes down to it, this is basically everything. Uh, you are struggling uh, to understand what the church is all about. Uh, this is where it, it continues like this. No doubt there have to be some differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. So it's not communion. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk at church. <laughs> Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Your divisions that you create in the church are actually happening because in your heart you despise the church itself. And you despise the church by hating the people in the church. You despise the church by creating a small cliquish group that excludes others so that you can create your own group that excludes. And the whole definition of the church and the whole definition of the church participating in communion is inclusion. It's about unity together and unity together with God. Here's what this means. 
If you're a part of a church and you decide to, that you uh, are going to start, like there's a whole program going on, like a Bible study program or a small group program, and you decide, we're going to do our own over here. And I'm only going to invite certain people to this one. And when they go to do that, I'm going to find out when that is, and I'm going to do it at the same time. So that they all know that we're over here and not over there. And then they're all going to, because they're all carnal, they're all going to wish that they were here in our group and not in that group. And these groups tend to center around uh, like a particular idea or a particular belief. Or I read this book by this author and I, now I think we, this is how we should leave, live our life. I know Pastor James and the elders of our church say something different, but this author is, I really like his books or her books. And I'm only going to do this over here. And this person, like when I get to heaven, it's like God, Jesus, maybe Abraham, and then this person. This is where it's at. Or you, you I, I, I'm trying not to use names. Um, you, you begin to uh, say there's this one speaker or this one pastor and they're where it's at. And I wish, that it, I wish that my pastor didn't suck so much and he was as good as the pastor from the church that I used to go to. There is a <laughs> it gets into groups that begin to use gossip and begin to use slander in order to control. It gets to where people begin elevating themselves and creating their own disciples within the church so that you pull yourself away within the church. Now, if you're new to Christianity, uh, we actually work really hard that this doesn't happen at the Grove. And what that means is when you have leaders in a church, both staff and like our, our pastor advisory team and our leadership council, all of those people end up having conversations where people are attacking them because we're sticking to unity and thinking that that's so important. And unity doesn't mean uniformity. We understand that. It doesn't mean perfect obedience. That's, that's a doctrine from a, a cult. That's not a doctrine from Christianity. It doesn't mean never questioning your leaders. But it, it, unity also means not getting your own way all the time. There are things that happen in a unified group that you would wish happened differently, but because you're so committed to the group, you allow those things to go or you allow those things to pass because you're committed to each other. People who are in a church who are actively working against what the leadership of that church, not just the pastor, but also the, the committees, and the, like we vote on our elders here, we pick people to discern uh, areas of our growth in our church and stewardship of our church that we need to. And so we vote those people into place uh, um, because they're godly people who follow Jesus and they're gonna give their best effort and we decide we're gonna follow their choices. But when you begin to work against that, then you're actually working against the church that God established which Paul says means you actually despise the church. Like he uses the strongest language possible to talk about the unity of the church in saying if you are actively working against the unity of the church, then you actually despise the church. I had a pastor friend, who, who, uh, his name is Daryl. If you remember, Daryl used to work here and Daryl went to help another local church that was dying and he was reading some books about... Uh, um, renewal and turning around a church. And one of those books actually said, and this isn't indicative or prescriptive of what was happening in the church that Daryl was working with, 
Uh, but it said that this author, who was a very, who's written a lot of books, uh, said that he believes there are people on assignment in churches, but they're on assignment from the devil. Because the devil would love to destroy the unity in the church. And you might say, well, that's just craziness. But I've talked to people, and the only answer is, yep, <laughs> they're the devil. I'm just kidding. They're just on assignment from the devil. And you get into like an irrationality that's happening to where if God can destroy, or if Satan can destroy the unity of the church, then the effectiveness of the church is just wash. It just is. And again, this doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean never thinking. Like it doesn't mean not having accountability systems, all of which we have very tight at the Grove, which helps us maintain unity as a church moving forward. I have friends here at the church who became Christians at this church who are confused when I say this because we don't have that experience here. Maybe someday we'll be blessed to get a building and we'll, someone will donate an organ and then the youth group will spill jello on it and then everything will go bananas, right? It'll be fantastic. Or let's get more personal. The, the carpet will be put in the lobby and the youth group won't be able to use their room and so they'll be playing in the lobby and marshmallows will go over, all over and they'll be ground in the carpet and the leaders will be staying and vacuuming it up and then someone from some board will come in and just completely rip on the whole volunteer staff because the youth pastor me was away that night <laughs> and caused division in the church. <laughs> Not that that happened, 100% did. <laughs> Not that I'm still bitter, 100% am. <laughs> if you've been in a family long enough, you've experienced people in that family acting in a hurtful way. If you've, and if a church is a family and you've been in that church long enough, then you've experienced that church acting in a hurtful way. And listen, I, I, no joke. I have more friends who've left the faith because of the church than Jesus. I've never had someone say, you know what, I tried Jesus, and I just didn't find him, uh, he wasn't just up to my standards. It's the church. The church hurts you. And so I want to promise you, promise you, the longer you're in the grove, the higher chance that you're going to be hurt by someone else who's in the grove. Because the problem is, everyone who's a part of the grove is just as fallen as you are. It's just struggles with emotional things or psychological things just as much as you do. And the beauty of the church happens when we work through issues, just like the beauty of the family. If you've had breakdowns inside of your family or in your workplace or on a team and then you've actually been committed to each other enough that you've worked through those things, you're actually stronger coming out the other end. And the same is true about Christians in a church. It's hard, though. It's difficult. You and I both, we have family situations or work situations that we're doing our best to just avoid that situation. You all are going to get together at Thanksgiving, and you know which topics are out of bounds. We don't mention this cousin. We don't talk about this uncle. And when we come to church, you don't bring up Calvinism. <laughs> That's a, Okay, the three of you got that. I appreciate it. But you don't bring up something, or you don't talk about that because we're trying to maintain the peace. But what that actually does is slowly disintegrates your relationships because there's something that everyone's holding on to that we're not going to talk about. And it's hard to talk about 
But when you do, you move forward. So, verse 23 begins this description of communion that I'm going to read to you, and you've probably heard it before. This is actually the oldest record of what communion is, because this was written before the Gospels, before Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. So this is the first written down actual record of what we do when we practice communion. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And just the language is there. It actually kind of means that uh, he was told, like he didn't, he wasn't in the upper room. He wasn't a disciple. He became a Christian later. Um, but he, this was an oral tradition that was passed on to him under the supervision, he believes, of the grace of God. And so, for I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Can we keep going right to the next slide? So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for being dead. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Plain instructions on how we participate in this ritual of communion. Which begins with this, um, if you are doing this, you're doing this in remembrance, looking back on the actual death of Christ. There's a somber reality that you'll approach this because when Jesus passed out the cup and he passed out the bread, he said, this is my blood that is shed and this is my body that is broken. And the real and actual physical pain that Jesus went through for the forgiveness of your sins is a reality that we continue to return to because it's the place that we need our souls to be, looking back in remembrance. But then we also only practice this until the Lord comes. And so we declare something looking back and we declare something looking forward because Jesus rose from the dead. He hung around for a while, went up to heaven, and will return someday to gather his followers and move into this new creation of the new heaven and the new earth. And so there's this holiness that we move into, this somberness that we move into because we remember that this is real. This God who became man died for real and suffered for real. The most gruesome and most uh, intense suffering that the Roman Empire could think of in crucifixion. And we're called to then examine our own hearts before we participate in communion. And what that means is uh, you look at yourself and you see if there's anything in you that needs forgiveness. Maybe forgiveness from God, maybe forgiveness from others. And then in as much as you are able to, you live 
in the peace of forgiveness. With God, and this is how I participate in communion, I'll always have a time of prayer, and if I ask God to forgive my sins, and if I can think of those sins, I mention them intentionally because of remorse that it brings to me and and repentance that it brings to me. But I also ask God uh, to forgive me for sometimes not even noticing and maybe bring to my mind the things that I should be known, like blind spots that we all have. I sin against people and against God sometimes unintentionally. And I hate it. And I wish that I could be forgiven for that and move on from that. And so that's how, that's how I pray every time I practice, every time I participate in communion. And that's what it means to examine yourself. And the the result of not examining yourself means that you're declaring the forgiveness of God without receiving the forgiveness of God, which is kind of like compounding your sin. So you have sin, you're refusing to acknowledge that sin, you're participating in the meal and with your sin, and then it all is falling apart. It all is compounding because your lack of acknowledgement of your sin is an additional sin, and your participation in the body and blood of Christ while you're sinful actually compounds the sin because you're bringing your sin into this sacrament, this sacred thing that Jesus has. It's difficult to wrap our heads around because there's spiritual realities that happen. And so we're called to examine ourselves. Will you ever be perfect? No. So communion isn't for the perfect people. Communion is really for the people who know they need forgiveness. Like, because of my life, the body of Jesus was required to be broken. Because of my life, the blood of Jesus was required to be shed. And when I self-examine, I move into that space and I move into that reality in a way that brings me grace in the practice of communion, in a way that brings me towards God, in a way that brings me towards my Savior. So is there in you heaviness? When we talk about examining yourself, is there in your heart things that you know you need to have a conversation with God about before we participate in community together? Maybe you even, like in today's day and age, maybe you need to shoot someone a text. Maybe you yelled at someone or lost your cool with someone or maybe there's someone that you just need to shoot a text to and say, hey, can we grab coffee together and begin to take that first step to no longer not acknowledging the issues, but engaging those issues so that you can move forward together. This actually affects us to such a point that Paul says, some of you have gotten sick, some of you have gotten so sick that you've died because you've been holding on to sin and sin eats away at you. Your spiritual reality becomes a physical manifestation in your lives because you've allowed sin and fear and failure to define who you are instead of moving into the forgiveness of Jesus. So today we're going to, together, actually uh, spend some time. The band's going to come out and begin a song, uh, but you, you can sing. We can remain seated. We're going to give you a time and a space to examine yourself, to pray, and to ask God to forgive you. And you can sing if you want, or you can pray, or you can... Like, we're actually just kind of creating a space. And then the music will get a little quiet, and I'll give you the instructions of how uh, we're going to uh, pass the elements around. And then we'll continue to worship together as as we do that. So uh, this is a time for you. And this is a time that is space. It's a gift. 
And we would just ask that you receive that gift by turning your heart towards God and examining yourself in light of his body and his blood.